it's not socialism and communism that we need to be worried about right now. It's much more sort of rapacious, uncontrolled capitalism, climate change especially. Um, so I think that these are the things we should be thinking about. And of course, I'm very interested in Soviet history, and I think it's important, especially as we're having new kinds of discussions about socialism or about communism. I think that these things need to be studied and understood. But the idea that, you know, this is the terrifying specter that, you know, is menacing us, and like looming over us at every moment. I find it so ridiculous that I think that we have to assume that it is sort of covering for other priorities. That's Sophie Pinkham a writer and academic who specializes in Russian and Ukrainian culture and politics. Sophie has recently published some review essays, primarily in The Nation magazine, about the Russian Revolution and the legacy of communism in the West. One of her main concerns is the manner in which a given historian's politics will affect their reading of the history and legacy of communism. Of course, it's true that a historian's reading of the past will inevitably be determined, at least to some extent, by their politics. A conservative will understand an event and its significance differently than a progressive. But Sophie Pinkham makes quite clear why the political assumptions behind this or that reading of the rise of Lenin, say, are uniquely important for us to understand and make clear. Sophie and I talk about Anne Applebaum's recent book, Red Famine, for instance. We talk in particular about Applebaum's effort to insist that communism and Nazism are equally bad. And I asked Sophie what she thinks about this proposed equivalence and what she thinks generally about the often unstated assumption held by, by many critics often in the center or on the right that socialism inevitably leads to tyranny. Since it's the centenary of the Russian Revolution, I asked Sophie what new or revised meanings we might take from the events of 1917. I'll drop you into our conversation at the point where Sophie Pinkham describes Anne Applebaum's book, Red Famine, which takes up the Holodomor, or the Ukrainian famine of 1932-1933, that was caused by Stalin. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. That book is subtitled Stalin's War on Ukraine, and it is positioned extremely explicitly um, as the story of Stalin's attempt to exterminate the Ukrainians uh, with an eye towards the direct relevance and direct causal relationship um, between um, Stalin's attack on the Ukrainian people through this famine of the early 1930s and uh, Putin's attack on Ukraine now in the context of the events of the last um, three, four years after the Ukrainian revolution. Um, and so this book, so this is a very, it's a very important topic. Um, it's un unbelievably horrifying. I mean, the events of the Holodomor, which I've been hearing about for a long time, I, you know, I lived in Ukraine um, before I had started studying anything about Russia academically, but I lived in Ukraine and this is something, you know, that I heard about. Um, I remember my Russian teacher actually, uh, who's teaching me in Ukraine, telling me stories about um, cannibalism, mm. Um, sort of children being of being told not to, you know, go off with neighbors because their neighbors might eat them. You know, it's 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 a cultural, it, not a cultural trauma, a historical trauma um, that was unbelievably huge in scale and unbelievably horrifying, and it left a huge mark on on Ukrainian society. But that also has been um, used, I would say, at times in a very cynical way by certain Ukrainian politicians um, to try to create a sense of 
Ukrainian victimhood. And I mean, the suffering is completely, you know, indisputable. But to create this idea of um, of Ukrainians as persecuted against Russians. And so there's this long story of um, Ukra- the Ukrainian government under Yushchenko um, asserting that this qualified, that this met the technical definition of genocide, that it should be recognized as a genocide of, uh, of uh, as a genocide against the Ukrainian people. Um, and, and, and on that, when it's used in that way, it's been somewhat divisive um, because the tendency then is to say it was Russians trying to exterminate Ukrainians. And so it can be used to play into anti-Russian sentiment. And in, you know, in Ukraine, it's quite complicated because they have a large Russian minority. They have a lot of people who, you know, if you ask them, will say they're Ukrainian, but who speak Russian. Um, the, you know, the feeling of the legacy of the Soviet Union is still extremely strong. So it, it was sort of a dicey political issue. Sorry, well, did you have a question? Well, no, and, 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 and Applebaum sort of suggests this, right, as, as you say, when she focuses on the question of Ukrainian nationalism and mm-hmm. the, the notion that, um, well, I, 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 I do have a question about her political assumptions because you address that with, I think, with respect to her perspective on Ukrainian nationalism, which is something you've been talking about. But you also mm-hmm. point out that Applebaum herself admits that her aim is to make the world, quote, recognize that Stalinism and by extension communism <laughs> was just as bad as Nazism. So I mean, yeah. you, you, and you suggest in your review, I like this line, you suggest that Albaum, in fact, treats Marxism as a kind of mental illness. Um, I mean, it would make sense that she would treat Marxism as a mental illness if her position is that communism is as evil as Nazism. But I, I'm sort of mm-hmm. wondering your perspective on that proposed equivalence. What do you think of that assumption that Nazism and communism maybe stem from the same totalitarian impulse and that that assumption is the best one to take when you're examining um, the history of the Soviet Union and its effect on Ukraine? I mean, I think that this is a proposition that has no utility except in as a sort of very blunt propagandistic move uh, by those who are trying to discredit communism and often also I think socialism you know um, and and so one thing that often happens in these kinds of debates is that Soviet communism which and you know I'm not trying to debate all of the terrible things that were done mm-hmm. under you know the flag of Soviet communism um, it was appalling the Holodomor was appalling the Stalin's purges were appalling you know the the waste of life caused by Stalin's, you know, various moves in the Second World War is upon so many bad things happen, right? So I, I certainly don't want to be taken as someone who's, uh, you know, a Stalin apologist, God forbid. But, um, but Soviet communism, first of all, is not communism as it has ever existed in any context or could ever exist in any context. And it's certainly not socialism, you know, which is sort of a broader banner. And it's very obviously not democratic socialism. Um, but I was very struck before I wrote my review of Anna Applebaum's book, I read the Economist's review of the book. And in the opening paragraph, it said something like, um, well, I think, I think it began by saying, in the 20th century, there were 70 million deaths by famine, um, of which 40 million um, took place under communist regimes. Um, And it was totalitarian communist regimes, right? Um, 
Under communist regimes, what better proof could there be of socialism's impracticality than its inability to to feed its people? <laughs> and this and this paragraph sort of really drove me nuts for so many reasons, right? Because okay, there are 70 million deaths from famine, 40 million, okay, took place under communism, but where did the other 30 million take place? You know, right? <laughs> um, and you know, I don't see an Applebaum writing books about you know famine under the British Raj, right. which is, of course, one of the most infamous cases of mass famine. Um, no, it's it's only, you know, the communist famines that, that interest someone like her because her interest is not in, you know, what causes famine, how does famine happen, how could famine be prevented in future, right? Her interest is in using famine as a tool to prove that communism is bad. Right. And it's, um, well, and it's interesting you bring up The Economist review i was i was i was looking at other reviews as well of the applebaum book and one mm-hmm. that was striking was um the brett stevens column in the new oh, york God, times I didn't, I didn't read that okay well i have i have a quotation for you and i think you'll be able to respond even if you haven't read it because it does in fact it perfectly sums up the, um, the applebaum assumption um mm-hmm. and, and it got a lot of it got a lot of um applause for this reason and also a, a lot of um it's it's fair share of detractors so um so Brett Stevens, of course, praises Applebaum's book, and um, he he segues into basically a complaint about the tendency of leftists, particularly young leftists or the, the folks who would, I mean, the folks who would have, say, supported Bernie Sanders or who, who perhaps would call themselves socialists. He, mm-hmm. he, he complains of their tendency to embrace not just Marxism, but, and this is very interesting, communist imagery generally. Um, so mm-hmm. he asks, quote, why is Marxism still taken seriously on college campuses and in the progressive press? Do the same people who rightly demand the removal of Confederate statues ever feel even a shiver of inner revulsion at hipsters and Lenin or Mao t-shirts? End quote. So I, I, I guess I'm wondering, you, you earlier you brought up um, the equivalence that Applebaum perhaps or some critics seem to draw between, between um, the communism, quote unquote, and the Soviet Union and just the the push, the present push, push for socialism generally, and I'm mm-hmm. wondering, I'm wondering what you think about this, and, and how much truth is there in, to the suggestion that the young left, um, um, simply in its push toward something like socialism, simply hasn't taken into account the quote unquote true history and legacy of communism. Um, well, one thing that I think is sort of absurd about, you know, arguments like, like Applebaum or what you just quoted from Brett Stevens is that, I mean, growing up in the United States, you know, if you are reasonably well educated and aware of anything at all around you, how, you know, how could you have overlooked, you know, the the crimes of Stalinism, for example, mm. you know, I mean, Stalin is practically synonymous with evil in our society, you know, and I, I mean, you know, there's this in all the anxiety about about Trump and is Trump going to become a totalitarian? This has given rise to a new blossoming, not only of hyperbolic Hitler analogies, but also of hyperbolic Stalin analogies, mm. you know, or or the or Russia gate and the anti-Russia panic. Um, you know, all of this, you know, Putin is the new Stalin, which which and Putin is very bad. I don't like Putin either. But I actually think that to compare Putin to Stalin is grossly disrespectful of the millions and millions and millions of people who are killed pretty right. directly by Stalin. You know, um, just to, to compare Trump to Hitler is a ludicrous historical analogy, in my opinion. 
That, um, that's interesting because the, there is this general suggestion I've 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 found. Maybe I'm just imagining it, but um, especially um, among conservatives or maybe just um, um, neoliberals that that Nazism is generally understood and reviled. I mean, and you can just the evidence for this could just be the all of the shows on the History Channel are about mm-hmm. World War II or something like this. But but their argument is usually that. Um, that the evils or the horrors of Stalinism are much less understood. Do you think that that's a fair suggestion or do you, or do you think that that's just, that's just not true? I mean, there are a lot of people who don't know things. <laughs> to right. be honest. Fair enough. Right. You always, you periodically see those, those, you know, those polls of how, what percentage of Americans know who the vice president is. So I'm not going to make a guess about the overall knowledge about Stalin and, the American population. But once you're looking at, you know, uh, leftist college students, they tend to know a lot about, Mm, mm. you know, or at least they certainly are aware of Stalin's purges and things like this. Right. I don't think I don't think there are a lot of Stalinists. In fact, I know that there are not a lot of Stalinists. There are virtually no Stalinists um, in the sort of Bernie Sanders community. You know, I've been to uh, I've been to a meeting of Democratic Socialists of America. There were no Stalinists there. You know what I mean? Like these are these are democratic socialists, and when you talk about people who supported Bernie Sanders, these are not people who believe in you know authoritarian purges and you know enemies of the people being taken out to you know the prison yard and shot in the middle of the night. You know, like it's just this ridiculous false equivalence. Um, and frankly, I think it's pretty obvious that when you have you know people like Brett Stevens and Anne Applebaum who are very closely affiliated with various, you know, types of institutions and various right. parts of our political establishment, you know, these people are, are threatened by leftism and are threatened by Marxism. One thing that I actually thought was disturbing about Anne Applebaum's book was that there were moments in it where she seemed to be almost as disturbed by the expropriation of property as she was by unbelievably gruesome death. <laughs> and, and that was another moment where, where I sort of thought, are you really as, as disturbed by people having their property confiscated as you are by you know, parents eating the corpses hmm. of their children? <laughs> because to me, those things... You know, you could have problems with both of them, obviously. But to me, it seems very clear that one is far, far, far worse than the other. Um, but I think, yeah, I think I think it's important to remember when you hear these people talking that what underlies um, a lot of their hatred of communism is not a hatred of death, right? Because we have abundant evidence, especially at this moment in global history. It's pretty obvious that it's not it's not socialism or communism that are, you know, causing the largest death tolls or that threaten uh, the the sort of largest amount of sort of violence and suffering, right? It's not socialism and communism that we need to be worried about right now. Um, it's much more sort of rapacious, uncontrolled capitalism, climate change especially. And climate change, you know, is something that's pretty clearly going to lead to famine and, you know, is already starting to do that. Um, so I think that these are the things we should be thinking about. Um, and of course, I'm very interested in Soviet history, and I think it's important, especially as sort of uh, as we're having new kinds of discussions about socialism or about communism. I think that these things need to be studied and understood. But the idea that you know this is the terrifying specter that you know is menacing us and like looming over us at every moment, 
I think I find it so ridiculous that I think that we have to, you know, assume that it is, uh, is sort of covering for other priorities. And I think a lot of those are just the desire not by establishments and institutions not to lose the power that they have and not to lose the money and property that they have. Well, could we talk a bit more about the sort of hidden, perhaps hidden, perhaps in, in some cases unhidden or very open motives of a mm-hmm. lot of the people who write about say the Russian revolution. Um, mm-hmm. So you, another, another review you wrote, a sort of a review essay you wrote in the nation was about recent books about the Russian revolution, as, as you pointed out, it is the centenary. Um, so your, your review takes up the question again, that, that we were talking about earlier, how do historians, political assumptions shape their readings of say the general history of communism in in the Soviet Union. So you, you mm-hmm. take issue, especially with two readings of, of Lenin's rise to power. First, the one advanced by Catherine Meridel in, in the book Lenin on the Train, wherein Lenin is presented as himself personally responsible for the revolution. You, you, you say it's as if um, in this book, the revolution came bursting fully formed out of Lenin's head. But then you also mm-hmm. critique uh, Sean McMeekin's book, The Russian Revolution, wherein it seems like, quote, this is your line, the revolution is less about large-scale historical processes and more about cold-blooded political opportunism. Now, there are, I think, and perhaps we could talk about this, there are some political assumptions in each of these arguments, um, but what do you see generally wrong with these two approaches to the Russian Revolution? Or perhaps more generally, what do you see as wrong about the most dominant historical approaches to the Russian Revolution that we've um, been sort of talking about? Well, for me, one of the things that jumps out most often as a weakness in histories of the Russian Revolution and in writing about Russia more generally is that in our imagination, and this is clearly a legacy of the Cold War, right? Um, In our imaginations, what we tend to know about most of all, and this is also true, you know, if you've studied if you spend a lot of time reading about or studying these topics, it's not only sort of for people who have only a vague understanding of it, but the things that stick in our mind are the, um, you know, the big, usually villainous figures, right? Right. Um, right. So primarily Lenin and Stalin, um, and the sort of, you know, the great, and it's sort of connected to the great man theory and so on, mm-hmm. you know, but it's also easier. I mean, in Catherine Marydale's book, part of it was just a narrative issue. I mean, she writes these, very engaging, um, sort of relatively popular history. And as anyone who's ever, you know, read uh, hard Marxist works of, you know, materialism, <laughs> those, those, those are much more difficult to shape into like engaging, vivid page turners that capture right, your imagination, right. you know, and I'm very for, I'm very for sort of materialist reading. And I think that you really need to understand what's going on economically, what's going on in the provinces, I, I, you know, obviously um, sort of major historical actors like Lenin or Stalin, you know, shape history to a tremendous degree, but they, I don't think that they act in a void, right? So with Mary Dell, I think it was partly that, you know, her book was about Lenin. Lenin was her main character. So it was to be expected that she would emphasize Lenin. Um, but then with Sean McMeekin's book um, showed, well, there were several, several questions I had about it, but one of them was this tendency. And so this goes back to the, to the focus on sort of the big actors. So usually Lenin and Stalin, um, 
and then the other big players, but then also to the sort of moments of extreme historical change and the violence mm. that occurs during those periods of historical change, um, which is, you know, often terrifying and awful and hugely traumatic for individuals, hugely traumatic for a society. Um, although, you know, the traumas are, we remember the traumas in very different ways, right? So Anne Applebaum, you know, writes a book about the Ukrainian famine, but not, you know, famines of the British Raj, okay. Um, and we in the United States are very interested in, you know, the traumas of Stalin's purges and the traumas of the Russian Revolution. We're much, we've been much less enthusiastic about sort of exploring the trauma of uh, of the 1990s in post-Soviet space, right? Which, mm. of course, wasn't as violent and wasn't as dramatic, um, but it, it took a huge toll on people who were living there. But because we saw the transition from communism as um, as an absolute positive, um, we're much less interested, I think, in, in sort of exploring um, the difficulties that people went through as a result of that historical rupture, right? But then I think mm -hmm. the biggest blind spot that I see when reading about the Russian Revolution is a blindness to um, the violence that was being done. And it's probably just because it's much less spectacular. It doesn't lend itself so well to narrative, but the violence that was being done by the status quo, right? And so one of the points I made in the Russian Revolution uh, review was that, you know, it couldn't have gotten to a point where Lenin could have seized power if people hadn't been very, very upset and angry. If there hadn't been a lot of people all over Russia who were very, very resentful and angry and upset for various reasons. And there had been, you know, a revolutionary movement at that point, um, you know, for many, many decades in Russia. It was something that had already gone through many different phases that had various leaders that had different factions. Um, so it was a wide-scale social thing. And in, in McMeekin's book in particular, I felt that he really, um, really downplayed, and, and this was even more true of Applebaum's book, uh, downplayed the sort of everyday suffering um, of people, of serfs, for example, or of peasants, or just of the poor, um, of the working classes. Um, and I think that that's something that always needs to be remembered. And that actually... But this is something that I started thinking about when I worked in public health um, and when I started you know, reading anthropology of public health and thinking about the concepts of structural violence, right? And I think this is a huge issue in the United States now. Um, I don't know if you, I was reading about um, Eric Garner's daughter um, having a heart attack and sort of reading something about, um, about the the fact that, you know, black women in the United States are so much more likely to die uh, as a result of giving mm. birth, you know, like, and these are, these are, these are moments of violence and of pain and suffering that don't make spectacular newspaper articles most of the time, right? Um, but they are real and they need to be thought about. So I think that when thinking about the Russian Revolution, as ever, uh, we need to think about the ongoing violence that gave birth to that kind of social rupture and not only about the violence that took place at the moment of the rupture itself. One of the, um, I think one of the assumptions you make, and certainly a lot of the people who are writing about the Russian revolution now make is that the way we uh, come to understand the causes of the revolution and also the reason that um, somehow that Leninism led, perhaps led to um, maybe not inexorably uh, maybe not inevitably, but did in some way lead to Stalinism. 
um, you, you, you put the, the relevance of, of the question very well where you write at the end of your review, quote, once again, economic inequality is a pressing political issue around the world. In American political discourse, Russia's cautionary tales are still used as blunt instruments to assert the impassibility of any kind of socialist revolution. Mm -hmm. A new generation of democratic socialists may glean more complicated lessons of 1917. So you, you go on to describe some of these lessons, um, but instead of just reading them, I'll ask you, um, if, if we start to reread the Russian Revolution today and the centenary, um, what do you think we should, what, what new lessons do you think we should take from it? What um, should we hesitate about or what should give us pause and also what perhaps should give us hope? Well, I mean, I would say one thing that I actually didn't mention in that review, but that I thought about a lot as I was writing it, is that, uh, first of all, you know, the whatever political establishment is in power at a certain moment is very likely to exert a tremendous effort to, you know, hold on to its own power, right? And mm -hmm. if you look at the history of, um, of revolutionary socialism and communism in Europe leading up to, more broadly in Europe, leading up to the Russian Revolution, what you see, and in Russia as well, what you see is that oftentimes the first people who are eliminated because they're the easiest targets are the people who are peaceful, are the pacifists, are the more moderate reformers and the, and you know and the Bolsheviks were guilty of this as well right and, and right. other Russian radicals would intentionally assassinate reformers because reformers stood in the way of revolution um, but what happens then if you have a populace that's unhappy enough it's there's a significant likelihood that some kind of uh, revolution or some kind of other um, severe and usually violent or traumatic uh, rupture will occur, right? And then by that point, the establishment has eliminated the pacifists, has eliminated the peaceful right. reformers. And what do you have left? You have the Lenins. And I'm not, I, there are some people who admire Lenin. Um, Lenin was certainly very, you know, very brilliant and had a very powerful mind. But I I think as soon as Lenin was in power, things had started to go wrong, right? Um, right. He, he didn't believe in democracy. Um, he had no qualms about using violence um, to, to get what he wanted. Um, so, so for me, the place where things went wrong was, was when, um, when democracy was abandoned as a central principle, um, when pacifism was abandoned, um, when nonviolent methods were were dismissed, but I think it's important to to realize that a lot of times the reason that the most bloodthirsty revolutionary wins is because the reformers have have been wiped out, right? Um, mm. So, <laughs> I mean, if I could give advice to America, <laughs> I think I think that it would be better to start, you know, taking steps to respond to what's becoming, you know, a pretty loud call for some kind of economic redistribution or at least you know checks to stop the you know rapid uh consolidation of capital 
an, an incredibly tiny subsection of the population. Um, but, you know, the Bernie Sanders group, what is it? It's peaceful. It's a democratic. It's extremely right. it's extremely mild, you know, like no one's getting hurt in the Bernie Sanders model. It's, you know, well, you get like, heard, free education and health Right, exactly. I've heard critiques of Sanders on the hard left that he's too much of a reformer rather yeah. than a revolutionary. Right, right. Yeah, but but, but I but, think, I mean, for me, studying the Russian Revolution, one of the most obvious lessons is that revolution brings an incredible amount of violence and mm. um, a huge amount of, of rapid death and the destruction of various types of institutions. Um, and I certainly am not a person who is, you know, filled with excitement by the word revolution. <laughs> um, I think that that, you know, I think that that's something. And I think that that is a problem in the American left, especially among younger people. Um, sort of this, this excitement about revolution. And there are peaceful revolutions, of course. Um, it doesn't have to be violent. Um, but I would say that, you know, you want to try as hard as you can for sort of peaceful reforms um, before you start talking about revolution, revolution can sound exciting, but the reality is that it usually brings a, a, a very, a very large amount of, of trauma and usually violence. So, right. So your advice to America is do not kill the reformers. Um, that is, per- that is okay. my, that is my advice. And maybe that sounds crazy, but I mean, not to, we don't have to look so far in the past to see a lot of our most important American reformers being killed. <laughs> so, so well, I think, yeah, I actually think cherish, that's a, that's cherish a good... our gentle reformers. <laughs> well, and I think that's um, that's a good <laughs> point to sign off on, actually. So, okay. Sophie Pinkham, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. That was Sophie Pinkham. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadarj Bar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.